give you three quotes and then I'll see if you <clears throat> can know what the theme is tonight. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. J.I. Packer writes it this way, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And then John Piper writes this, Repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and all our obedience. In case it's not obvious, the main theme we're going to see from Genesis 44 is going to center around repentance. But before we dive into the passage, I want to share one verse from Paul's letter um, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 24. And um, it goes like this, 2 Timothy 2, 24 uh, through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Did you notice that little phrase in there, God may perhaps grant them repentance? The title of the message today is The Gift of Repentance. In my own personal testimony of coming to acknowledge and completely trust in Christ as my Savior, it was clearly a gift from God that I began to see the folly all around me as empty and meaningless, the folly for which I uh, was sometimes leading the charge with my friends. And uh, it was clearly a gift looking back that in those times of folly, I or someone else didn't get killed in our recklessness. And it was clearly a gift from God to give me an awareness of guilt before him um, that led me to a friend who, who um, shared the good news of God's provision to forgive me and reconcile my relationship to him. And then it was clearly a gift for me to trust Christ and to stay on the course of following him, uh, even though my immediate circle of friends would turn on me and ridicule and abandon me. Uh, but how about those of us who have been Christians for, for quite some time? Uh, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, so please don't raise your hands. But has God ever brought you to a place where he had to turn up the heat in your life so high in order for you to come to your senses? Have you ever been brought to a place where you knew that if something didn't change in your life, then you would lose everything near and dear to you? If you can identify with that, I would dare say at that time and in that moment, you did not see God bringing you to that point as a gift from him. But I hope in hindsight you have, if you've been there, or if you have not come to grips with it yet, um, I hope that you will because indeed it is a gift. And make no mistake about it, God is providing these brothers the gift of a lifetime here in this final test in, in Genesis 44. Will they truly repent? Will these brothers forsake their brother Benjamin in order to free themselves 
Will they disregard the well-being of their father? How far will they go to make things right? So there are three elements of repentance that I want to look at tonight um, that I'm going to point out in this story uh, that Joseph's final test, which is really God's test for these boys, um, is going to bring out. And these really are three elements that should be true of any sincere repentance. Um, One, we will see an acknowledgement of guilt before God. Two, we will see a change of disposition of heart. And three, we will see an abandonment of self-protection. So as a quick review, just to get us caught up to where we're at, okay? Um, Joseph was 17, and uh, that little boy was a tattletale. And um, so it didn't help that his father, you know, played favorites. And so, uh, but uh, that little tattletale tale got him in trouble. And so his brothers hated him for that. And then he shared a dream, probably in the way you would think, you know, a younger brother about the age of 17 talking to his older brothers would, probably not in the most humble of ways. Um, so they hated him even more. Um, so they took it upon themselves to plan to just do away with him. Uh, they were going to kill him, but instead they decided to get some money for him, and they sold him to the Midianites. Uh, then the Midianites evidently uh, sold him as a slave into this high official's house in Egypt, uh, and he rose to a position of prominence, only to later have his master's wife lie about him, which got him thrown into the slammer. Um, but then in the slammer, he, he met a guy and uh, interpreted that guy's dreams. Um, Well, that guy forgot about him until uh, Pharaoh, who uh, he worked for, had a dream. And then he remembered Joseph a couple years later. And um, it was like, hey, I remember this guy in the slammer who could interpret dreams. And maybe he can interpret yours. And so so Joseph gets cleaned himself up. He's out of prison, goes to talk to Pharaoh and interprets his dream, uh, which is about a famine. And then um, the interpretation starts Joseph into actually advising Pharaoh on how to prepare. So Pharaoh says, sounds like you're the man for the job. And uh, and so Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. So the beginning of this famine hits, and Joseph's brothers have to go to Egypt, and they happen upon Joseph. And Joseph accuses them of being spies, and they say, no, no, we are honest men. And so began this series of tests, and the pointed question is, are you indeed honest men? Um, Are you trustworthy? Uh, That word honest there actually is more than just like you tell the truth. It's more, are you faithful men? Are you trustworthy men? Um, And if you think about it from Joseph's perspective, right, he lived with these guys for only 17 years, and from his perspective, these guys were scoundrels, they were murderers. There were thieves and there were liars. And here they're telling him that they're honest men. So he's going to test them in this. Um, So if you remember, the last test was that Joseph said, if you are honest men, then bring your younger brother to me. Well, as we saw last week, Jacob didn't want to let that happen. But then after a long time, Judah finally convinced his dad that that was their only choice and that he would be a pledge for Benjamin's safety and would bear the blame if Benjamin did not come back. And so they went up to Egypt, and to their amazement, grace was shown to them. Joseph had invited them into his house for a feast, and they had a great feast, and there was much merriment, as as, um, 
Eric talked about at the end of last week. And so that brings us to the beginning of chapter 44. <clears throat> so as we, as we begin chapter 44, their bellies are still full. Uh, they're still full of joy, still full of food. And we're going to look at the passage in four sections. Um, the plan in verses 1 through 5, the probing in verses 6 through 17, the plea in verses 18 through 29, and the exchange in verses 30 through 34. I cannot come up with another P. Okay, so no, no, no four Ps. <clears throat> so the plan, let's dissect the plan. This is the anatomy of this final test. Joseph tells the steward to fill their sacks to the brim and then to hide his special silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. Well, what Joseph is doing here is he's recreating the exact principle in which his brothers had failed him. In other words, would these boys stand up for the powerless? Would these boys be faithful to their word and to their family? Would these brothers allow the favorite son, that is Rachel's son, you remember that Jacob you know, always played favorites with Rachel's kids, would Leah's kids, would the concubine's kids come to defend the favored one? Would they step up at the very point that they had failed with Joseph? Joseph is asking the question, are you honest? Are you faithful men? Because he needs to know if he can entrust himself to them. So let's look and see what their response was. He was basically setting them up, as you, as you know. Um, and so we transition to the probing. Remember when they met Joseph for the first time and Joseph said, you are spies, and they retorted, no, we are not. We are honest men. We have never been spies. And then right here, when the steward approaches them, they just barely left the city. Their donkeys are loaded down, and while they are leaving, the steward follows them and overtakes them. And, and um, hopefully you caught even like how Eric was, was reading the passage, even in the tone of his voice. That's just what I'm trying to get at here. Um, uh, they say, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from us to do such a thing. In other words, it's like what they were saying in almost a snide way was, look man, we brought back your money. Do thieves bring back what they stole only to steal again? And so then they up the ante on the steward, almost like in a, in a proud way. They're, they're like, okay, well, you think, you know, we're dishonest? Well, how about this? If that cup is found in any of our sacks, we'll all be your servants, and the person who stole it will be put to death. It's like they are so confident. They are so righteously indignant. And what I mean by righteously indignant is that these boys are responding with an attitude of, annoyance, perhaps um, even anger by what they perceive as unfair treatment. They're, they're carrying this morally superior attitude, and this is the attitude or the character point that God is going to have to root out of their lives if they're going to see redemption and restoration. And I think the application for us is that it's the same for us. How could we come to Christ? How could anyone, for that matter, on this planet come to Christ unless God roots out our morally superior attitudes and makes us aware of our complete and utter sinfulness? Um, and that's what, what's going on here. 
You see, among these men, I mean, I mean, I'm just talking about us. I, I mean, I don't think any of us have been murderers. But you see, among these men are those who murdered the entire town of Shechem. They attempted to murder Joseph, but ended up selling him into slavery. I don't think anyone's tried that yet either. Among these men is one who committed incest with his father's concubine. Among these men is one of such poor moral character that his daughter-in-law knew that if she dressed like a prostitute and got in his path, she just knew that he would purchase her services. That's the sort of men these were. But they are so righteously indignant about this, forgetting all of the character that has come before. And Joseph's test is going to hammer this right out of them. And so the men lower their sacks, completely sure that their names will be cleared in just a moment. And if you notice how it says in verse 11, um, I I'm just got it here, so I'm not looking here. But uh, if you look in, in your Bibles, it says, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. It's almost like they were, they were too eager to just go like, here, take a look. You know, it's almost as if they were uh, wanting to just prove the servant wrong. You can almost hear the frustration in their voices like, I can't believe we have to do this, but whatever, as they roll their eyes. Um, Please take the grain, look at it, so we can just be on our way and go home. And so the steward methodically begins with the oldest, and then to the second, and then to the third, and down, and down, and down it goes. Every time the sack is opened, I just kind of picture these brothers rise again in their righteous indignation and in their confidence until he opens, because the steward knew, right? You know, the steward knew what was going to happen. Um, and I just picture the steward opening in a very dramatic way the last sack. And you can imagine the sheer horror of the boys when they see the silver cup. They had just been invited to a feast like they had not had in their entire lives. They had been given money from this man And it says right here, their sacks were filled to the brim. They've only been treated good. They've only been treated right. Finally, Benjamin's sack is searched, and there's the silver cup. And it says that they all tore their clothes. I want us to notice that this is a collective action among these brothers now. Okay, they were were all, uh, all of them tore their clothes. All of them mourned because what they see is a finding out of their sin. In verse 14, they later, when they're in front of Joseph, it says they all fall to the ground before Joseph. And then Joseph speaks and says in verse 15, What deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? <clears throat> now, I'm not going to take the time to get into all the different opinions about what commentators have to say about the meaning of this, but the couple points I'll make are these. Underlying Joseph's question really is setting the tone of this question. Do you not know that God sees it all? Eight times in this chapter of the words, find out or found. And secondly, Joseph is indeed using his silver cup to divine something about his brothers. Um, He knows that they're his brothers. And he's going to protect them to see it that they don't starve to death. But they've done him so much wrong, he's wondering if he can entrust himself to them. And Joseph, just like us, in the sense that he can't see into their hearts. And so he wants to discern what the Lord is doing in an unseen sort of way. And so he's going to use this cup to create um, incredible adversity in their lives so that he will know exactly what God has or has not done. 
And then in turn, he will know whether he can entrust himself to them. So he was, in a sense, using this cup as a tool to know what God was doing in their hearts. So in verse 16 to 17, we finally see a full confession. And if we notice here, Judah actually begins to speak out loud to both Joseph and in the hearing of his brothers. So he's really speaking to both of them. And he says, God has found out the guilt, singular, of your servants, plural. In other words, Judah just sizes it up right here and says, we are guilty men. And his brothers know exactly what he is talking about. He is communicating to his brothers right now that this is the finger of God and we need to stop running from this. We've been found out. We are guilty. If you remember um, from chapter 42, um, we started to see this guilt awakening uh, when they first were found out with the money in the sacks. But the difference between there and here is that in 42, they were speaking among themselves, um, even though Joseph could understand them as we found out through the interpreter. Um, but here they were willing, or actually, yeah, Joseph, but here they were willingly confessing their sin to Joseph, even though they didn't know it was him, their brother. But we do see here that they do feel guilt before God for what they did to Joseph. And they see no clear, no way to clear themselves of this, of this guilt on their own. Um, they are definitely at the end of the line. Um, you see these words that just, uh, they, have no, they have no other options here. He says, what shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? And what's interesting is, again, he's using the collective we. Um, it's not like, well, he's the one who did it. Can we, can we go now? It's, it's we. Um, so you remember I asked the question at the beginning, have you ever been brought to a place where you knew that if something didn't change then you would lose everything near and dear to you? Well, I brought that question up because I have. And the problem with sin is that oftentimes we don't really repent. Um, we might feel bad. We might not like the consequences or the embarrassment of getting caught or the uncomfortableness it brings into our lives. But it really is the grace of God to arrange circumstances in our lives in such a way as to get us to the point to not just mourn over the circumstances we don't like, that sin brings into our lives, but to grieve over how it defames and belittles God's glory and displeases Him. As long as we're just trying to fix things up and smooth things over to make our lives easier, then we're really not at the repentant level, but we're really just living in a self-protection mode. When I had said that I had experienced God bringing me to a place where I knew that if something didn't change, then I would lose everything near and dear to me, it's because my first response to God's awakening of a change that needed to be made in my life was nothing more than self-protection mode. And it was a false repentance, not sincere. And I'm guessing that many of you can identify with what I'm talking about. So now we get to the plea. I'm sure that you noticed in the reading that the author gives some prominence about the brothers to Judah, I mean, among the brothers. Um, you just, even right here, it says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. The author is clearly starting to have Judah rise up here to prominence in this passage. So I thought it would help if we remember a little bit of who Judah was. <clears throat> 
So he was the brother that moved away from home. He was the man who took a pagan wife. Uh, we don't even know her name. We just know that he was, she was like Shua's daughter. Um, and Judah raised two sons who were so wicked that God ended their lives. God judiciously imposed the death penalty on Judah's two sons. So Judah's wife dies, and later he goes to a sheep shearing party. Okay? And remember that he had broken a promise to his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, that he would give his third son to her as a husband. Well, it became obvious that he wasn't going to do that. So she dressed up as a prostitute and got in his path, and lo and behold, Tamar got pregnant with twins. And remember when it was reported to him that Tamar was pregnant through prostitution? Do you remember what he said about her? Let her be burned. Well, Tamar then produced his signet ring and staff to prove that he was the father. And that moment of public revelation and humiliation, the grace of God began to pour into Judah's life. And he said this, she is righteous, righteous, not me. And so Judah moved back home and started putting his life back together under the covenant family of God. And so we see that even in this crisis, um, Judah rises to prominence as a leader among his brothers, and he stood up to his dad to say, Dad, let me be security for the boy. And now they've gone back and are facing an even greater crisis, and he is going to have to return without the boy, and now Judah steps up even further and offers his public confession of their sin. We are guilty men, and God has found us out. Ain't that right, brothers? And so now Judah launches into this plea, this humble posturing of himself before Joseph to beg for mercy. And it says in verse 18 that he went up to Joseph and asked to speak a word in his ears, which um, implies to me that he wanted to get close, um, close proximity to his face. And over and over, Judah uses these words, Lord, when referring to Joseph, and servants when referring to themselves, to do everything he can to posture himself correctly toward the Lord of the land in a humble way. And then Judah begins to recount the story and like, uh, can I tell you a little about my family? Now just think about this for a minute, right? Joseph was, was taking this all in and it had to be very emotional as some of this was unknown information to Joseph. You remember the last time he heard so little bit of his, the story of, of what the brothers were saying, he wept, right? And now he's going to hear more of this picture of the story that he has not known about um, his whole life. He had no clue um, the last 20 years um, uh, about this unknown information um, that Joseph had been disconnected from the family. He had no clue how they explained his death to his dad, okay? He had no clue about that. Um, he had no clue what the arrangements were in order for Benjamin to be brought back. Joseph had no clue that Judah had made himself security. Joseph had no clue how much his dad grieved over him. For all he knew, his dad might have just said, well, my son's gone, let's move on. Um, so what Joseph is seeing is a picture being put together right before his eyes of a family that has been shattered by this one great sin um, and has just been in destructive mode ever since. And they, these brothers thought that they could never get that back. They thought it was completely blown to bits, irretrievable, and little did they know that redemption was looking them right in the face. 
So regarding the three elements of repentance, we already saw the first one, which was the brother's acknowledgement of their guilt before God. And we are now going to see the second one right here in this plea. The second element is a change of disposition of heart. And we already saw some of it as the brothers collectively were taking responsibility for the stolen cup on behalf of Benjamin. So instead of just pointing him out. If you notice in the reading, Judah is not at the center of this plea. Um, if you noticed it when it was being read, I won't read it again. Um, but rather, Judah focuses this plea almost entirely on his father. You don't see him talking about himself. You don't see him talking about Benjamin. Um, he speaks directly about his dad 19 different times. And he says the words, my father, 15 times. And that was the whole problem all along, right? We've been going the life of Jacob for a long time, right? And so many problems with Jacob, right? Um, Jacob's deception. Jacob's pacifism as a dad. Jacob's favoritism. Jacob had shown special love to Joseph, and that had just infuriated these boys. And Jacob even hated his wife Leah, and the boys resented that too. And here what Judah is doing is saying, you know, I haven't had a good relationship with my dad, but I pity him now, and I can see his plight now through my eyes, and I want you to take me as your slave so that my dad doesn't die in grief. This is a radical difference, a radical change of heart. The brothers all went back into the city when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They didn't say, it's your problem, we're going home. They saw it as their problem. They care now about Benjamin, and they care now about the well-being of their father. And this brings us to the exchange. Remember, Joseph had told them that they could all go home in peace, except Benjamin. He was, he was going to let them off the hook. But they were like, we can't go home in peace. There is no going home in peace for us. Number one, if we go home without the boy, my father's life is bound up in the boy, and my father will die in sorrow. And number two, I pledge myself as security for the boy. And if I show up without the boy, then we're all in trouble. Now remember, I mean, if you just think about it, right? Um, nowhere in the passage do we see Benjamin's innocence established. You know, it's, it, it's just assumed that, uh, I mean, yeah, it's never shown that, like, it, that he's innocent. Um, I mean, we, we know that he was because he was set up, but it's not, it doesn't come out. So for all the world, Benjamin looked guilty. Um, so how many of you have a younger brother or sister? Okay, right. So um, think about that. Um, had the silver cup been found in your younger brother or sister's sack, wouldn't you have just taken your hand and did one of these numbers on the back of their heads? Whack! What were you thinking? You know, I mean, think about, like, you know, you're walking back to the city and you're just, and you're, Younger sibling starts ranting and saying, like, I didn't take it. It wasn't me. You just say, shut up. You know? Um, so you just you wouldn't even probably believe him, you know, or give him a chance to talk. You just assume, like, that knucklehead, what was he doing? Um, what I'm getting at is this. Those brothers could have just gone back to their dad completely justified and said, Dad, he stole it. It was in his sack. We all saw it with our own eyes. And you yourself said, if you're deprived of your children, you know, so I'll be deprived. So they had every reason to just go back and let the guilty one be guilty. But that isn't what Judah was saying. 
Judah was saying that he would bear the boy's punishment. I says, I can't bear to know what would happen to my father if I came back and not him. So you see, you see what's going on here. You see what Judah is doing. The innocent is standing up for the guilty. An innocent man is standing up and saying, I know he's guilty. What can we say? We are all guilty. Take me, not him. So he took it. He said, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not even going to deny it. I stand up for this boy. Take me, please, he's begging Joseph. And the whole time he's pleading very closely to Joseph's ear. And so what Joseph is witnessing here is this third element of sincere repentance, which is an abandonment of self-protection. Joseph is, I mean, Judah is giving himself up. Joseph is seeing how far the boys are willing to go to make things right, and it involves a self-sacrificing kind of love, a love that is willing to do whatever it takes to be right before God. And you got to just know that, like, Joseph's heart was just bursting out of his chest at this point, which it was, and he can't stand it anymore. He sees what God has been up to all along at this point. He weeps and he cries such a loud weeping that the Egyptians all around could hear the moan. And... Um, We'll pick up the sequel next week as to what, what happens. So we'll just end it right there. Um, but right now, <clears throat> I'm going to ask the deacons to please come forward. And I'm going to close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I just think of that verse that says... Um, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, Lord, and for us in this room, Lord, that are going to celebrate your supper right now, God, I clearly it was a gift to us, Lord, that you granted us repentance, Lord, that you um, caused us to um, see um, an acknowledgement of our guilt before you, Lord, you um, brought us to that point. Um, Lord, you gave us a change of disposition of heart, God. You um, brought us to a point of abandonment of self-protection, God, to, to throw ourselves on your mercy, to um, just trust you for saving us because we knew that we could not save ourselves. And... Um, Holy Father, just uh, thank you for this passage. And I just when I think of God, everything that we've gone through here in the book of Genesis and all of so many of everything that points to the redemption story and what you've done, God, is like <laughs> the first book of the Bible could be the only book of the Bible, God, and we have everything needed here um, to show us you. The song, Show Us Christ, God. It's, it's like it's all here. It's all in here. Um, giving us these pictures. He's um, showing us your redemptive plan, God. It's just it's so... Actually, it's, it's mind-boggling and um, just thankful for it, God. And uh, revealing yourself through your word to us. Um, 
So God, I just uh, pray that we'll have a special time now of fellowship with you during this communion time. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>